Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're beginning a new series this, uh, this Sunday. And we're going to be going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I know that you probably have, are very familiar with this. As a matter of fact, those who are not believers are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's one of the most famous sermons, if not the most famous sermon uh, ever known. Uh, we find many phrases that we use in our culture, in our common language, uh, on a consistent basis, like describing someone as being salt of the earth. Uh, we have language that is common to us that flows out of this, uh, this sermon. And it's very familiar to people. John Stott said, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. Uh, as we look through this, we're going to find that we are familiar with many portions of this passage. As a matter of fact, in my last series on the Ten Commandments, each week, just about, once we got into the second table of the Ten Commandments, we came to this text because Jesus is dealing with the commands and he's dealing with them and with authority. Uh, I, I want us to understand that what this sermon is about. There's a lot of different understandings about what the Sermon on the Mount is about. As a matter of fact, as going through some commentators, and uh, there was one who says uh, that there are at least 36 interpretations of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. We're not going to talk about all those today. But I do want us to have an understanding of what's the gist of this sermon? What's Jesus trying to communicate through this message that he delivers to his disciples? And uh, so I want us to answer that question today. What does this sermon mean? There's something we need to understand going into it, and that is uh, that the, it's speaking of the kingdom of God throughout. And we're going to see that the kingdom of God is already and not yet. What I want to do today in answering that question is I want us to uh, look at four understandings of the Sermon on the Mount uh, and just uh, misunderstandings of the Sermon on the Mount, how people misunderstand how it's delivered, four different ways uh, that are general and a little more broad than the 36 uh, that I mentioned earlier. And so I want us to look at this, uh, four understandings of the Sermon on the Mount, and then uh, after those four understandings, I want us to see four principles that direct our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. And a matter of fact, in, in, in essence, what does it mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. That's the first part of the sermon. Here's what it does mean. That's the second part of the sermon. Uh, so first, the four misunderstandings of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as we look, we look at verse 23, and I had John read this morning from 23 through 5-3, and we see that the context is, is that Jesus uh, is, uh, is 
teaching. He had just begun his ministry there in 417. You can see from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he has begun his ministry, his preaching ministry, and he's called a few disciples to himself, and he's going throughout Galilee, teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He comes to this place. Uh, crowds were following him from Galilee, uh, Decapolis, the, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing those crowds, what did he do? He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So we see contextually, here's Jesus. Uh, you know, he's going through, he's doing the ministry that he's called to do, and he takes time and he says, I want to teach my disciples something. What is it that he's teaching them? What is it, in fact, that he's teaching us? What is it that we glean from this sermon, this famous sermon that is so often misunderstood? So I want us to learn that uh, in these days ahead. Today, four misunderstandings of the Sermon on the Mount. The first is this. Often the sermon is presented as a legalistic directive to obedience. A legalistic directive to obedience. Now, there's something that we need to know. Jesus wants us to be obedient. He wants us to be obedient. But what we have here is a vision of the Christian life. So we're supposed to live out Jesus' vision as believers. But this vision of what Jesus is laying out for this is the Christian life can be presented without grace. It can be presented in a way that is nothing but legalism. The beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, the angel comes to Joseph. And Joseph is pondering leaving Mary because she has been found to be with child. It's not his. And the angel said, don't be afraid to marry her. Don't be afraid to stay with her. This child she's carrying, he will save the people from their sins. The gist of the Gospel of Matthew is a Savior has come to save people from their sins. And what we need to gather here is that this is a message of hope rather than despair. It is a message uh, that leads us to keep pressing on rather than throwing in the towel. It's often presented as a legalistic directive to obedience. And as a result, what happens to people is they realize, I can't do it. All of us have felt that. We read the Word of God. We have all felt and sensed and known, I can't do it. That's what legalism often does. It presents a hopelessness 
that is absolutely unintended from the scriptures, and particularly from Matthew. The second way that it's often handled is as an explanation of law meant to break us and lead us to the gospel. I know what we'll do. We'll make them feel so guilty that they'll run to Jesus. Some people preach it just to show us how terrible we really are. I, I, I know how terrible I am, and I'm not, I, I don't know it as well as I should. The, the truth of the matter is, is that we are so totally depraved, sometimes we're not even familiar with all of our sin. I find myself, Lord, the sin I don't even know. Help me overcome that. Sinclair Ferguson writes, perhaps the most common approach is to see it, the sermon, as a message calculated to produce the greatest possible guilt in the fewest possible chapters. It's an interesting observation. But Jesus' intent is not to bring about guilt so much as it is to bring us to faith in Him. The law certainly presents and shows how terrible we are, shows us our sin. It causes us uh, to find and to discover that we are hopeless in our sin. But Jesus delivers hope. Not merely with his words, but with his presence. I urge you, do not miss who the preacher is in this sermon. Do not miss that the preacher is our Savior and Lord of all who believe. Do not miss that the preacher on the mount is our Redeemer. He is the Lord. And He is preaching a message of hope. He did not preach in chapter 5, verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them in such a way as to press us and crush us. He didn't preach, fulfill the law and I will save you. Instead, he said, I came to fulfill the law. In this text, he's, one of the things he's saying is, the law is not going anywhere. He said, it's not passing away. He said, I came to fulfill it. So don't relax the law. That's what he's saying in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
He said, I came to fulfill the law. He said, don't relax the law. He says, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. How can our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? Our righteousness is Christ. And we believe in Christ through faith. You will never achieve righteousness through works of the law. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he is not giving an explanation of the law to break us. He came to fulfill the law. And in doing so, we trust him. And he gives righteousness to our account. Some handle the sermon in this way as a guide for social progress. As we go through here, we find such things as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a basic law of moral and ethic. So this particular point uh, says this, the world would be better if everyone obeyed this sermon. Kind of follows the thinking and philosophy of Immanuel Kant in a way. If everybody would just do this, everybody would obey this, this sermon, all of our social ills would go away. This was the attempt of what is known as the social gospel in the early 20th century. They recognized the social injustices that exist uh, in our nation and in our, uh, in our time. And this movement made the Sermon on the Mount a plan for churches to overcome those social ills. James Montgomery Boyce writes, All that was needed for the realization of Christ's kingdom, they said, was a widespread understanding of the Sermon on the Mount and a vigorous application of it to our culture. He goes on and tells us that the fatal flaw of the social gospel movement was the attempt to preach Jesus' ethic to people who had no relationship with Jesus. In other words, you're not going to... Uh, change society merely by changing the morality. You must change the heart. Because morality will not be maintained by people who are overwhelmed by and led by their sinful desires. And that's who we are apart from Jesus Christ and the Spirit coming to indwell us. It comes to this, morals minus Jesus equals death. So it's vital for us to 
understand that this is not merely a guide to social progress. If everybody just did what was in this sermon, our world would be a better place. No doubt. But the truth is, everybody can't. This sermon is written for those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Those who are outside the kingdom of God cannot, would not, would not attempt to live according to the rules of the kingdom of God. The last is that the sermon, uh, a misunderstanding, the last misunderstanding is that the sermon is often oriented or presented entirely toward the future. Um, this would be a uh, view called dispensationalism. It just happens in the future, not something now. Some see this as applying only to a future reign of Jesus after his second coming. Now, most of this among dispensationalists have been corrected. Uh, but the kingdom of heaven has come, but none of these things will be realized until he comes again. It's important to understand that the sermon is for now. The kingdom is now or already and not yet. It is already because Jesus has come. He has come into this world. He has provided entrance into the kingdom through the cross. He has lived out for us the example of those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom has come. There's a sense in which we need to understand that if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we are in the kingdom. But we find ourselves also in this place of kingdoms that are in conflict because we are in the world. And so very much the Sermon on the Mount deals with things that we face as kingdom citizens in a world that is warring against the kingdom of God. The kingdom is not yet in the sense that all things have not yet been made new by His second coming and the ensuing judgment that punishes sin for eternity. As you think about this, and you kind of pour through and you think about some of the phrases in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't help but wonder in regard to this view. If the kingdom of God is only something that is future after Jesus comes, why is somebody slapping me in the kingdom of God. Why am I angry at someone after Jesus has come and established all things? Now we see that these things certainly relate to the things that happen in this world now, presently, like anger and lust and divorce. 
These are things to guide us and help us now in this world. So these are some misunderstandings of the Sermon on the Mount, but let me uh, now look toward four things that will help direct us in understanding the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing is this, is that the Sermon on the Mount is actually uh, part of a larger book or larger gospel called the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is not something that stands outside of a book of the Bible, but it is within the book of the Bible, and therefore it has a broader context in which we need to understand. What's Matthew writing about? Who is Matthew writing about? Why is Matthew writing about these things? Why does he include the Sermon on the Mount? So we need to understand that it's in, uh, in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew. And the gospel of Matthew begins in chapter 1 and 2 to tell us the origin of Jesus Christ. Tell us how Jesus Christ came to be on this earth and who he is. We see after that the, the things that uh, inaugurate his ministry, the, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit, his baptism and uh, his time in the wilderness and the uh, power of the Spirit working in him, and then his ministry begins. So we have uh, the, the chapter 1 and 2 the, that lead up to the beginning of his ministry, uh, that, which begins, we see begins in chapter 4. Then at the end of the uh, Gospel of Matthew, we find uh, that he is crucified. And we see the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We see uh, some post-resurrection activities of Jesus Christ. And between these two things, uh, the beginning of him, uh, of his ministry, and the uh, end, if you will, of his life here on earth and his resurrection and ascension, are five sections within that. And all five sections point us to something called the kingdom. They are identified by a phrase that is repeated throughout Matthew. And that phrase is, when Jesus finished these sayings. First time we see that is in chapter 7. Uh, look with me, if you will, chapter 7, verse 28. It says there, and when Jesus finished these sayings, that's the end of the first main section. What the first main section, like I said, is doing is it's presenting to us uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The beginning of his ministry in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so we find that the end of a section and the beginning of another section, section 2, which presents the kingdom in such a way uh, that there are healings, uh, healings demonstrate the coming of the kingdom. So after the Sermon on the Mount, we see beginning in chapter 8, I mean, if you just take a cursory look at the little uh, uninspired headlines that they put in our Bibles, You'll see, Jesus cleanses a leper, the faith of a centurion, what happened? His child was, uh, uh, his servant was, was healed. Jesus heals many. Uh, Jesus calms a storm. Jesus heals two men with demons. Jesus heals a paralytic. Jesus calls Matthew. 
Jesus heals two blind men, a girl restored to life, and a woman healed. So we see the kingdom of God coming in with healing taking place. That's the beginning of the second section, and the end of the second section uh, comes at chapter 11, verse 1. And there it says, when Jesus had finished instructing his twelve, finished teaching again. That's the end of the second section. And the beginning of a new section. And the new section uh, is this rising resistance toward the kingdom of God that begins to take place. A rising resistance toward the kingdom. Here we... uh, uh, see that uh, messengers from John. There's even a bit of resistance here. Hey, hey, are you the one or should we wait for another? Jesus said, hey, you know what? The, the lame walk, the blind see. And he starts going through it. But we see resistance also coming because he begins to preach. In his preaching, he begins to speak of those cities that would not repent. He gets in little squabbles here and there, not because he started them, but because the Pharisees did over the Sabbath. Um, and he begins going through this. So we see a rise in, uh, in opposition or a rise taking place, res- rising resistance of the kingdom of God. And uh, at the end of that section is chapter 13, verse 53, where it says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. That's the end of uh, the, the section of this rising resistance of the kingdom. And section four sees increasing division regarding the kingdom. Now there's more and more and more opposition, more aggression toward Jesus, uh, more piercing questions in regard to who he is and who do you think you are doing the things you do. So there's division, this polarization, if you will, taking place. This section runs to 19.1. And in 19.1, we see... Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, and right after that comes the test of the Pharisees. Is it right for us to divorce a woman for any reason? Is it right to divorce our wives for any reason at all? And these questions become more penetrating and become more obvious of the authority of Jesus Christ. This begins section 5. Section 5 has in it the greater hostility and ultimate victory of the kingdom. Because now what happens from this time on is Jesus has set his course toward Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, he's going to enter in. And when he enters in, they're going to really be pummeling him. And in one week after he enters in, by the Friday, he's nailed to a cross. 
But folks, I want you to know, being nailed to the cross and dying there is not the end of the story. In fact, what it is, it is the victory of the kingdom of God in that he died and that he rose again. What we see in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew communicating what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And not only that, how the kingdom of God has been established on earth, how the kingdom of God will be established in, in, in days to come, and how we are to live as citizens of the kingdom while we are in this world. And so it's important for us to see uh, this large pattern um, of Matthew, the greater context. With that, let's finish up with a couple of thoughts. And that is, if we're going to answer the question, what does this sermon mean, or what is this sermon about? We've got to understand that this sermon is about the kingdom of God. It is about the kingdom of God, for which, of which all who believe and repent in Jesus Christ are citizens of. It's a sermon about receiving and living in the kingdom of God. In receiving the kingdom of God, we receive the message of the kingdom of God. Look back at chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How is it at hand? The king has come. He is living and actually preaching to you right there. So we see that it's about receiving the kingdom of God. In verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. So what we find here is that uh, it's about the kingdom of receiving the kingdom, of entering the kingdom. How do you enter a kingdom that you cannot see? Because we need to understand there's not a kingdom in which there is a place. What we have instead is a realm or a Reign, if you will. It's the reign and rule of Jesus. Not a place you can go to, but a reign and rule that you live under. And that reign and that rule is the reign and rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to live under. It's not a place. It's a rule and a reign that we live under as citizens of the king. You know, one of the problems of that is that we're always looking for another reign or looking for another king. Don't we do that often? We don't like the answer of one, so we seek the answer of another. Probably best understood in the role of mom and dad or 
grandfather, grandmother. Here not long ago, I found this out. I don't, I don't think I told Gina, I was kind of embarrassed, but we had pizza and had our family over. And my grandson had asked me, I mean, he was there sitting in the, in the kitchen, and I walked in, and he goes, can I have another piece of pizza? <laughs> I mean, I'm Papa. Of course you can have another piece of pizza. Later on that day, Gina and I were talking. I said, yeah, that, she let me know. She said, yeah, that, that boy, he was, uh, he was really wanting to stay in the house and everything. He said, can I have another pizza? And she said, no, you can go outside and be with everybody else. You're not sitting in here by yourself. You see, what happened is he didn't like her answer. So he went looking for another king, Okay. Let's go find the reign of somebody else that will give me the answer I'm looking for. And that's exactly what happened. The danger for us is that we will do the same thing. Jesus is presenting a standard that we all find out very quickly we can't live up to. But what do we do? We press on under the one who has fulfilled the law and granted to us righteousness that is undeserved. His righteousness applied to our account. And so we bring ourselves under the rule and the reign and the authority of Jesus Christ willingly, knowing that although the standard is high, My Savior is greater. He has fulfilled the law. One of the things we find about the kingdom is that the kingdom of God that is already is lived out in a sinful, dark place the Bible refers to as the world. In chapter 6, verse 8, one of the commentators, and I can't remember, I didn't write it down, said, this is what it's about. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. This is the key. And Let me tell you, every commentator seemed to have a different verse that was the key. <laughs> They're all key. Chapter 6, verse 8. Do not be like them. Who? The world. Don't be like the Gentiles. Do not be like them. This is the standard of the kingdom of God. Don't be like the world. The consistent message that we find throughout this sermon is there is a way of the world and there is a way of the kingdom. Live according to the way of the kingdom. That's the encouragement. Where's the strength? Where's the power? It's in Jesus to do that. Next, I want us to see, we see that uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount is, is part of the 
broader context of the whole Gospel of Matthew, that the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God, and the Sermon on the Mount is about discipleship. There in 5.1 it says uh, that he sat down, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so we see Jesus teaching his disciples, teaching the crowds, and he answers this basic question. And understand that the, all the disciples, all 12, he hadn't called all of them yet. There's just a few. Andrew, Peter, James, John. Just a few that he gathered in Galilee. Later on, he's going to be bringing on some more. But he's already teaching. And we find the contents of this sermon all throughout his ministry, really. But he answers this basic question. What does it look like to be in the kingdom? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Those who are followers of Jesus, what are the characteristics of their living, of their life? What characterizes a disciple or a follower or a citizen of the kingdom? What characterizes them? Jesus wanted his followers to be like him. So he lays out this sermon. We see this truth as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. We see some, uh, some truths instructing people about what it looks like to live in the kingdom, what it looks like to be in the kingdom, what, what are the things that they believe. Look at 5.10. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Citizenship in the kingdom has in its characteristic and has in its job description, I guess you would say, the potential of persecution. He says those who are in the kingdom may be persecuted. As a matter of fact, he says, blessed are you when others an expectation. When, not if, but when you are persecuted. Later on in 17 through 20, we see that those who are uh, kingdom citizens are not kingdom citizens because they follow the law exactly, but because they trust in the one who has fulfilled the law. Jesus. They don't enter the kingdom because they have done all the things that the law demands of them, but because they have believed in the one who fulfills. In chapter 6, verse 10, we see that he's laying out what it means, what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's essentially in the Lord's prayer there. Recognizing that there is a distinction between what's in heaven 
and what's here on earth. And it's asking God to work in such a way that the kingdom of God would fill up this earth. The people that are passionate about the spread of the kingdom of God. And then here's another verse where the commentators say this is what it's about. Chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. There it is. Seeking God. Seeking His righteousness in pursuit of a life that imitates Jesus Christ. Jesus is laying out a vision for His people. And the desire of Jesus is that we follow the vision that He lays out. Lastly, this sermon is about Jesus. It's about the one who's doing the preaching. The sermon is about our Savior and Redeemer. Look at chapter 7, verse 28. 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What stood out about his sermon? Authority. The authority of Jesus Christ. The power in his preaching. The authority in which he helped us to see what it means to be in the kingdom of God. They're waiting for the kingdom. And he has delivered an authoritative message. That's what they see. Who preaches like this guy? Not the scribes. I mean, y'all know what the scribes did. They copied the scriptures. They sat and they wrote them. They were the ones, they were the lawyers. They were the ones who knew the law better than anybody. Why? Because they wrote it over and over again. And when they taught, they were just kind of spewing out what they had written all these times. But Jesus was explaining the scriptures in this authoritative way. Who preaches like this guy? I mean, think about this. Look back at chapter 5. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account. It's easy to miss that because we know that's Jesus. I mean, it's, but these people don't know that He is God incarnate. They are not aware that everything that was created was created by Him and through Him and for Him. Who preaches like this with that kind of authority that says when you're persecuted for my sake? I mean, if I said that to you, what would you do? Who are you? They didn't walk away that way. 
They walked away astonished at the authority of Jesus. I mean, who does this with Moses' law? You've heard that Moses said this, but I say this. Who, who are you? What about chapter 7? Depart from me. Those of you who don't do the will of God, depart from me. He's still on the mountain preaching. They see him in flesh. For I never knew you. The lasting impression of his sermon was authority. The authority of this one. As we go through this series, I want to encourage you, look at Jesus. See Jesus in this sermon. See him as your preacher. See him as the one delivering the sermon to you. And listen for the authority. Of the one and only true God. He's bidding you come. Follow me. Be like me. As we go through this. Hear Jesus. Not only bidding you to come. But offering to you. His authority. And the power of the spirit. To do what only those in the kingdom can do. And that's to walk in obedience to Him. Certainly not complete, but certainly consistent in pursuit of His holiness and righteousness. Next, examine yourself as you walk through this. I don't know about you, but as I look through this and as I've been reading these chapters and considering the message of Jesus in this sermon. I have found repeatedly, boy, I need, I need to work on that. I need to pray about that. I need to find a, a plan that helps me. Bring yourself under the reign and rule and Authority of the living God and know that he is a king that genuinely loves you and cares for you and wants what's very best for you. Do you all know what that is? It is to know him and the power of his resurrection. It is to know him, the living, true God, more and more and more every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for recording for us this sermon. 
But not only that, Lord, but for giving us all of the gospel of Matthew that helps us to see the scope and the longing of the kingdom of God. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to envision and to live out, to experience being under the authority, being in subjection to the King of kings, the King of glory. Father, we pray, God, that as we walk through this, Lord, that you would teach us just as you taught these on the mountainside. And Father, that we would glean from you ways, Lord, to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and to pick up and run, Lord, the race that you've put before us. Father, that we would live in the kingdom as citizens obedient to you. And Father, as we do that, let us be the salt of the earth. Let us be the light of the world. Let us stand on the gospel even if it kills us. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name.